All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer again as we open up this text together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, again, the opportunity to celebrate baptism this morning and, and see uh, someone take that step of public confession of personal faith in you. And I pray that you would stir our hearts toward greater faith as we study this together. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever thought about how it's one thing to agree with something, but it's another thing to actually take action because you believe it? Like you can think of something like flossing, you know? Like you, you've probably heard that you should floss daily, and it's good for your dental health. Um, yet if I were to ask, how many of you agree with that? Probably everybody would say, sure, I'm, I'm fine with that. But then if I were to ask, how many of you flossed this morning? It would probably be less, or... We floss last night, or this week, or this month, or even own some floss. Uh, it might be uh, far, far less, right? It's, it's one thing to agree with it. It's another thing to take action. And we can think of all kinds of examples with our personal health, right? You can think about our eating habits, our sleeping habits. And we have a number of college students in here. I'm guessing you guys have not averaged seven to eight and a half hours of sleep per night this week. Uh, young parents, I know that of you as well. And so the, the reality is we can know these things and yet not really act on them and not really live them out. And I think that same kind of issue exists with the topic we're going to take up today. The, the title of the sermon is The Mission of God. And as we get into the text that we just read and we begin to think about these things together, I know that most of you in this room already agree with everything I'm going to say about this text. I know that most of you already believe the things I'm going to tell you this says. And so the question is not so much an issue of belief or agreement, but action. Do we actually live out the things that we believe about the things of God and, and particularly the, the mission of God as we see it here? And I think the, the context of what Ian just read to us is helpful. So I, I just want to mention briefly the part of chapter 9 we didn't mention because, or we didn't read because it kind of sets up that text. Um, as we looked at last week the, in, in the early part of chapter 9, we're in this context in Luke where we're getting a lot of emphasis on the disciples and we're seeing over and over that they really just still do not get it. And we see the same thing in, in these sections of chapter 9 that we didn't read. They're arguing over who is the greatest. They're willing to leave others out of the mission. They're looking down on others and, and looking to punish them uh, when they reject Jesus rather than continuing to hold out hope for them. And you're starting to get this sense of, is anyone ever going to really get this? I mean, they've got the Son of God in their midst and there's still all this confusion. And then at the end of the chapter, these would-be disciples come up and they demonstrate that they're even further away. Three different people come to Jesus and they each have some amount of willingness to follow him, but they also possess some misplaced priorities. You know, it's let me do this and then I'll come follow you. And Jesus makes it very clear at the end of chapter nine that being his disciple is costly and it's intended to be preeminent over all other responsibilities. And so by the end of the chapter, you're thinking, you know, we've got Jesus, we've got these people that have walked with him, lived with him, listened to him, some of them for years now, and it just doesn't seem like anyone is grasping what he's saying or that anyone's ever going to be able to make that turn from maybe even just agreeing with it to actually 
believing it in their hearts in a deep enough way that they're going to begin to transform how they actually live. And then we get to chapter 10, and Jesus does something unthinkable. He turns to these people, these confused people with misplaced priorities and an incomplete understanding of himself and his mission, and he puts it in their hands. And and it's kind of crazy to think about. He, He turns to these people who haven't quite been tracking with what he's been saying, and he says, now you go and represent me to the world. What an amazing thing. And so as we look at that story today, I want us to focus in on five key truths from the passage. But again, as as I say these out loud, I know that most of us already agree with these things. And so as you're hearing these things, I invite you to, to reflect on not just do I believe this, not just do I know this in my mind, but have these truths really sink deep enough in my heart and soul that they begin to transform how I order my life? Because that's really what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. So we're going to walk through Luke 10, verses 1 through 24, five truths about the mission of God. And here's the first one. Disciples accomplish the mission of God. Disciples accomplish the mission of God. Again, I told you these are very, very simple, right? So despite all their failings in the first couple verses there in chapter two, we see Jesus appointed 72 others and he sent them out to proclaim his message in the towns that he would visit. And the thing I want you to notice there is that these 72, there's nothing in the text that tells us that they were uniquely trained or specially called. They were simply his disciples. They were followers of Jesus, but they were just as capable of confusion and misplaced priorities as all the people we've been reading about and that Ian taught us about last Sunday. So here's the thing we see there. Jesus only commissions imperfect disciples. He he doesn't wait for someone to get the the proper training and and the degrees and the experience to where they're then ready in in some sort of perfected way that they're not going to make any mistakes. He only commissions imperfect disciples. But, but catch this. He commissions all of his imperfect disciples. And, and I, I get that from this prayer in verse 2. This is probably the, the part of the passage that is most familiar. Uh, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. plentiful. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's probably the most familiar part of the passage. I've always taken that to mean something along the lines of we ought to pray because there's a great harvest out there, because there's a world full of darkness and hopelessness that desperately needs the Son of God and His message of good news. We ought to pray that that God would raise up some people from among us to pluck out from us and go out for us proclaiming this message. I don't actually think that's what this means, though. I think Jesus is getting at something that's actually far more radical for our understanding of discipleship and the mission of God. I think what Jesus is actually saying is not, Lord, not pray, not that we should pray, Lord, take from among us and send us out, but Lord, make more of us, right? So he's praying that God would save more, that God would make more disciples, that there, in order that there would be more laborers 
for the harvest. The harvest is plentiful. We need more workers. What's the solution? Jesus says we need to pray that we have more disciples because disciples are workers. Disciples are laborers. Disciples are entrusted with and they accomplish the mission of God. So that ought to be a part of all of our lives. So that's the first truth. Second truth is that disciples recognize the urgency of the mission. So we get into verses three through eight there. We see some specific instructions for this mission. And they're they're specific to this time, but I think there's some principles that we can learn even in our own day. Uh, Jesus begins by telling them we've got to realize the risk. We've got to understand that rejection is possible. It's even somewhat likely. And so you've got to understand that you're like a sheep going among wolves. Uh, You don't have to come from an agrarian society to understand that the sheep among the wolves is in a bad spot, right? And so that's the context. It's the picture Jesus paints for us as we go out into the world. So he says, pack light, right? Depend on the Lord. Trust in him to provide for your need. And he says in, in a number of ways, we ought to be strategic, We go into a place, we speak a word of peace, we offer God's blessing, we see how it comes back to us, and then we determine whether or not we're going to dwell with the people there uh, long term, or whether or not we're going to move on to somewhere where our our work might be a bit more fruitful. But but beneath all of those instructions is this notion that the task is incredibly urgent, and disciples ought to recognize that. They ought to see that the mission of God is going to require sacrifice, and it's going to require selflessness, and it's going to require some strategy. It's going to require thinking about how can I make my life account for this, and and how can I uniquely be used by God to accomplish these things? And we've got all kinds of examples of this throughout church history. We can think of examples even in our own midst here at Midlands. I I was thinking in preparation this week about uh, St. Patrick. Uh, We celebrated St. Patrick's Day last Saturday, right? Uh, maybe you guys probably know Patrick was actually a historical person. Uh, he was not a leprechaun who wore green and pinched people. Uh, he was actually a real person, but he was a real person who had a pretty difficult life. As a young man, he was uh, abducted, he was captured, and he was basically brought into slavery in Ireland. And we don't know all the details of his life, but when, uh, when he was in slavery and, so, and through some means, he came to know the Lord. He came to understand the gospel. He became a Christian. Eventually, he got himself out of there. He escaped uh, from those who had enslaved him, and he got free, and he got back to his homeland. He got back to his family and his hometown and his friends. And, and like anyone else would say in a setting like that, His family came around him and said, Patrick, we're so glad to have you home. We don't want you to ever leave again. You know, you can just hear mom and dad saying, I'm never going to let you out of my sight again. And Patrick said, about that. You see, here's the thing. While I was escaping, I had a dream. And I began to think about how this place that I've been in is so dark. And how in order for people to do the things uh, to me that those people did, they have to be so deceived and so lost and so hopeless. And, and I've, I've realized the great grace that God has worked in my life and the way he has turned the lights on for me. And I'm able to see things through a whole new lens. So I'm actually going to just gather some things and I'm going to head back. <laughs> and he went back to Ireland. He went back to the people who had enslaved him, back to the people who had abused him. And, and he came to speak to them the freedom that he had found in Christ Jesus. 
And it, as crazy as that story is, I, I think when we put that alongside of Luke 10 and other passages like this in the New Testament, the, the thing I'm, I'm increasingly more and more convinced of is that's just what disciples do. That's actually not that remarkable. If, if you are transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light and left in a world where others are lost and hopeless, what else would you do but go to them with all your might, all your resources, all your energy, and proclaim that message till your dying breath? You see, disciples recognize the urgency of the mission. So that's the second truth. The third truth is disciples represent their master. They represent their master. So in verses 9 through 16, Jesus gives some instructions there to his disciples about how they're going to go into these towns and they're going to speak about the kingdom of God and particularly how the kingdom of God is near. Now, this is, is kind of an interesting idea. We've talked just a little bit about this in our study of Luke. When we say the word kingdom, uh, a number of different ideas can come to mind. We, we use the, the word today to refer to a physical place. So we talk about the United Kingdom, referring to that group of islands west of Europe, right? Or we could talk about uh, how the kingdom of whatever nation has elected a new ruler. And when we say that, we're not so much talking about the physical place, but we're talking about the people themselves, right? But then there's a third way to talk about the kingdom, and that's the typical way that we see it in the New Testament. And that's to think of the kingdom of God as the reign of God or the rule of God. And so when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God coming near and how later it's going to come in fullness when he comes again, he's not talking about some physical place that's sort of arriving, right? And and he's not telling his disciples to go and proclaim to these cities, the kingdom of God is near because all of the citizens of the kingdom are coming to your town. Like we're all moving in and taking over or anything like that. What he's telling them to say is when you walk into a town, You ought to manifest your citizenship in such a way that you're able to proclaim to others, there is a new rule coming into this place because people who have submitted submitted themselves to the reign of Jesus Christ are now in your midst. Something unique is happening here. The kingdom of God is near. We represent the king and we bring you a word from him. And just like in our own day, Jesus tells his followers, you ought to expect people to reject this message. Some will receive it. And when they do, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and you send them out as well. But when they reject you, here's how to handle that. And so he gives some instructions in verse 11 and 12 about, uh, you know, not presuming upon success, be ready to move on if necessary. And then he begins to talk about Um, that regardless of the reception that they give you, you ought to still proclaim to them that the kingdom has come near, right? So the message is the same. If, If they recognize it or if they reject it, disciples are still to proclaim the kingdom of God is near, right? Because we're here and we're submitted to the Lord Jesus and we are representing our king. And so people who encounter us ought to be in some way encountering the the Lord Jesus Christ because disciples represent their master. And then Jesus goes on to give us a sense of how true this is. Again, we want these ideas to not just be up here in our head, like we acknowledge them and agree with them, but we want to feel them sink deep in our soul. So you look at verse 13 and 15 there, he gives these woes, 
right? And, and what he's doing there, if you're not familiar with the, the cities, is he's, he's speaking to some, some Galilean cities that he's going to send his disciples to. He's saying, woe to you if you reject my disciples as they come in your midst. And then he compares them to these renowned Old Testament cities. And these Old Testament cities are renowned for rejecting Jesus, right? Or not rejecting Jesus so much as the, the light of God and, and the people of God, uh, specifically Israel and, and their message in the Old Testament. And so what Jesus is saying, the, the idea there is he's saying to these Galilean cities, your rejection of my disciples is actually worse than these well-known cities of the Old Testament who rejected Yahweh and Israel. Now, what makes it worse? He's saying the revelation you receive is far greater. Right? So it's one thing to miss a dim light like you have in some of the stories of the Old Testament. But when the bright and shining blaze of the kingdom of God arrives in your town through my disciples, if you turn your back on that, you're in big, big trouble. It'd be better for you to have been a part of Sodom. Right. That's the idea he's getting at. And what's underneath it all is this notion that disciples represent their master. And so then he it says in verse 16, a, a phrase or a sentence that kind of sums all this up. And we'll, we'll read that here. He says, the one who hears you talking to his disciples, hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. See, Jesus is not sending them out to kind of gauge how people res will respond to him once he comes to their town. What he's telling them is their response to you is their response to me. We're not putting out feelers to see how it will go when I arrive. When you guys get there, I'm there. And if they reject you, they're rejecting me and they're rejecting the one who sent me. So disciples represent their master. I think that ought to change how we think about our life. That changes how I think about being a dad. That changes how I think about being a husband. That changes how I think about fulfilling my, my duties and my responsibilities in my job. That changes how I think about being a citizen of this country, about being a, a member of a family. It changes everything about you. Because when you act, you're not just acting on your behalf. It's not just your name that's on the line but you're representing your Lord. Disciples represent their master. So it puts this responsibility before us. So that's the third truth. The fourth truth we see here is, and we're going to see five. This is four or five. The fourth truth is disciples are defined by relationship, not results. And this is, this is my favorite part here. Uh, so there's a little bit of time between verse 16 and 17. We, we don't have a clue how long, but there's enough time that uh, basically Jesus sends them out in those first 16 verses. In verse 17, they're coming back. And so they, they went out to these towns. They did some ministry. We can assume they did the things Jesus told them to do. And now they're back to tell him how it went. And they are ecstatic. Look at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. So the disciples are, are excited. They're finally starting to realize the power and authority that exists in Jesus. The demons submitted to us when we spoke your name. I mean, the, the wild and unbelievable things we've seen you do, we just went and did those things. 
because we represented the master, because we recognized the urgency of the mission, because we were accomplishing the thing you've set out for us to do. And so Jesus affirms their celebration, but watch what he does here. He, he tempers it with some perspective. And in verse 18, he says to him, essentially, yes, your victories are Satan's defeats. And I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I think that's probably a reference to their authority and by uh, proxy his authority over the demonic forces. So, so we're winning. Yes, I see that. That's, this is good, right? And yes, your spiritual authority is going to be demonstrated in part by your security in the physical world. That, that weird verse in uh, verse 19 where he talks about treading on serpents and scorpions and all these sorts of things. I don't think he's necessarily telling us to go out and do those things. Uh, I think he's saying you, your physical security is in some way an evidence of how God is with you. He's going before you and he's going to accomplish great things through you. So yes, that's, let's celebrate that. That's, that's great. And yet... That's not the most significant thing about you. And I think this is a good word for us to hear today. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, Jesus affirms their celebration. This is a really great day. Some amazing things have happened, but I don't want you to find your identity in your ministry. I don't want you to think that the most significant thing about you is the things that you see me do or perhaps sometimes not do when you're laboring faithfully and you don't see the fruit that you long to see. I want you to rejoice not in the way God works through you, but in the fact that you know God at all. See, it's so easy to focus on results, isn't it? Right? I mean, any, any of us who have taken up this mission seriously at any point in your life, whether it is uh, whether you've gone on a mission trip or you've you've served cross culturally or you, you've entered into places that are not like the places you've come from and you've spoken to people that are not like you, maybe speak different language from you, maybe different culture. When, when you've gone into places where you recognize the darkness, it, you feel the, the burden of this mission, Right. Or maybe it's just as simple as that, that moment when your classmate, whom, whom you realize is not a Christian, and, and they're, they're speaking things opposed to the gospel, and you just feel this, this sense in your heart, I need to say something, I should say something, I, I don't know how they're going to receive it, I'm a little nervous, but, and then you do it, and, and you, you speak up for the Lord, and you fulfill the mission of God in that moment by being light and darkness. Or maybe you, you've grown up in a family where... Most of your family members don't know the Lord and you're like the Christian in that family and, and you're just faithfully laboring before them, working the fields, trying to do the things we're saying you ought to do here and you're just not seeing the fruit. This is a word of comfort to you in this moment. Jesus says the most important thing about you is not your fruitfulness, it's your faith in me. See, I want you to find your identity not in the results of your ministry, but in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we ought to look. The, the language here, when he says your names are written in heaven, it's, it's census language. It's the kind of language they would use to talk about how they divided the towns and where your citizenship is. And it's interesting. Jesus says Satan has fallen from heaven, but your citizenship is eternally secure. Right, your names are written. And there's a, a present active verb there. 
You ought to go on rejoicing. You can always be rejoicing. The circumstances of that may change. It may, may not feel like a time when you ought to rejoice. It may feel like failure, but you can always rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You can go on rejoicing no matter what the circumstances may bring. So for any of us who have ever taken up this mission with any amount of seriousness, I, I encourage you to hold fast to that word this morning. That we're not measured by our fruitfulness. The most significant thing about us is our relationship with the Lord because ultimately it is the Lord who brings fruit. And He brings it in His time, in His way, and we can trust Him in that. And we can rejoice even when we are rejected, right? So Jesus does not want His disciples defined by relationships. He went, or I'm sorry, He does not want them defined by results. He wants them defined by their relationship with Him. And then lastly, the fifth point about the mission of God here. His disciples ought to view the mission as a privilege. Ought to view the mission as a privilege. When you look at verse 21, uh, it says in that same hour, Jesus himself begins rejoicing. And this is one of those cool little Trinitarian moments in the New Testament. You know, we talk about God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, three persons, one God, and uh, sometimes it's hard to put all that together in your, in your head. Uh, I think often the best thing we can do is just acknowledge it's there. <laughs> this is how God reveals himself. And this is one of lots of places we could go in the New Testament to see this sort of activity happening. So in the spirit, Jesus, the son says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And he's, he's rejoicing that God in his kindness has hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. See, God delights in using the weak and the foolish and those whom the world would not expect to be very useful. We think again about all the blunders of chapter 9. Now these disciples are walking with the Lord and they're arguing over which one of them is the best. And they're, they're coming up with all these goofy ideas and Jesus is constantly having to rebuke them and tell them, no, no, not that. This is not... Your show, we're not doing it your way. You still haven't quite figured it out. And yet he doesn't say, you haven't quite figured it out, so get out of my way. He says, you haven't quite figured it out. Now, come on, let me show what I can do through you anyway. Let me show what I can do through you in spite of you. He says to the Father, for such was your gracious will. Oh, what a privilege. I mean, what a privilege to be a part of the mission of God. I remember exactly where I was when I realized this truth for the first time. This notion that the Great Commission was actually a privilege. It was an honored invitation. I was in a, a conference in Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, with Campus Crusade uh, in college, my senior year of college. And I'd been a believer for a number of years. I had sought to be obedient to, to this command to go and, and proclaim the good news of Jesus to my friends and family. Um, I, I'll just be honest with you, I had not seen a lot of success whatsoever. Uh, I had some friends that just seemed to every time they, they could sneeze the word Jesus and someone would pray and want to get baptized. And, and I would just like labor with people and I would be intentional and I would pray and I would do these things and it just felt like nothing ever happened when I shared the gospel. And it just felt like people, people I, I was praying for were somehow getting further and further away. Uh, despite my every effort. And there were just so many times, you know, that I just looked at it and I thought, I should have said this. 
you know, you always kind of think of that really bold and, and wise rebuke, you know, like the next morning. <laughs> so I would always think of those things the next day. And oh, if I would have just said this, maybe they would have, maybe they would have believed. And so when, when I heard messages like this, they brought me a lot of guilt, to be honest with you. I mean, if I came into church on Sunday and the, the pastor got up and said, today we're going to talk about missions and taking the gospel to the nations. I mean, there was a, a part of me that was just kind of like, oh, gosh, I'm going to leave here feeling bad. I know where this is headed because I know what I want. I know what I ought to do. I've, I've been trying, but I know I haven't been doing as well as I should. And it just led to guilt. And I remember at this conference, there were some great teachers that just kind of helped me unwind some bad thoughts in my own theology. Um, I was around some great people that had a much better perspective than me. And I remember this one particular moment. It just, it just kind of dawned on me that when, when Jesus left and ascended to heaven and beforehand said to his disciples, I'm going to send you out in my name to go and proclaim this message to the ends of the earth, he wasn't punishing them. <laughs> That wasn't like his last dig, you know, like you think being my disciple has been bad. I'm going to make it even worse. Now you got to go and represent me and I'm just going to head off to heaven. No, he actually said, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. And, and that commissioning was actually part of the good news to them. And it ought to be part of the good news to us today. See, the, the mission of God is not meant to be a source of guilt. It's meant to be a source of joy. It's a privilege to be a part of this. It's a privilege to get to see lives changed. It's a privilege to get to represent your master, to be able to say with honesty, if you, if you hear the word I'm saying and you heed it, you respond to it in faith, you will spend eternity with God, not because of me or the way I'm saying it or anything like that, but because these things are true. These things are real. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he has left fools like me in charge of telling fools like you. What a privilege. What an honor to get to be a part of this. And so Jesus, I think, says that to his, disciple and to his disciples in those final words there. In verse 23, he turns to them and he says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings longed to see what you see and didn't see it. They desired to hear what you have heard and they did not hear it. And baked into that is, but you are a privileged few. You get to be a part of this. And he says the same thing to us this morning. So we're going to close our time today by taking communion like we do every Sunday. And I love that we finish our services here with communion uh, because in relation to this, communion reminds us that it's a privilege to be commissioned. Right? It's a, it's a privilege to get to take communion and it's a privilege to be commissioned by our Lord. And so in a, in a moment, the band is going to come and they're going to play and, and sing a song. And we, we would invite any, any of you who are believers, uh, you, don't, you don't have to be a member of this church. If you're confessing faith in Christ and you're, and you're walking in obedience to him today, we invite you to uh, enjoy the table with us. Uh, if, if you're with us today as a, as a guest and, and you're not a Christian, 
Uh, maybe you're a bit like those folks in, in, at the end of chapter 9, that you've kind of been hanging around some of this stuff for some time, but you've got these ideas of like, well, let me first do this, and then I'll come to Jesus, or let me clean myself up first, and then I'll come to Him, and all those sorts of things. We just want to be clear, communion is for Christians, and so, so we'd ask you not to partake of, of this part of the service, uh, but we'd love to talk to you more about it. And so um, I'm going to be in the back. Some of our other pastors are back there every week. And we'd just love to t- tell you more about this. Uh, you can ask most of the people in this room. And, and we'll gladly tell you uh, more about Jesus. We'll gladly uh, unpack things from what we've talked about and, and just be happy to talk, to talk with you some more. So let, let me pray for us and then I invite you guys to the communion table. Lord, thank you for your word. It is, it is light and darkness. It is... Honey, it is sweet honey in in the midst of bitter circumstances. It is hope when we are hopeless. It is pure when our motives and our thinking can get so muddied by the concerns of this world. So we thank you for your word and we, we pray that you would purify us as we consider it today, as we reflect on Uh, the story, as we reflect on your mission, as we reflect on the privilege it is to be counted among those whom you have counted worthy to not only call to your side, but to send out in your name. Help us to think of ourselves as commissioned. Help us to, to think of ourselves as disciples entrusted with the great and wonderful responsibility of representing our master. And Lord, help us to do it faithfully in our homes, with our kids, in our jobs, with our coworkers, in our schools, with our classmates, wherever you might send us, whomever we might be around, Lord, help us to be a light to them and help us to faithfully represent you well, Lord. And we pray that you would draw others to yourself through our witness. In Christ's name we pray.